Hello everyone, welcome to the International Business Podcast. If you work across time zones, borders and cultures, this is the show for you. I'm Leonardo, founder and host of the show, but let's make it simple and just call me Leo. I'm based in Shanghai and I'm accompanied by two co-hosts, Stefano, based in Paris, and Audrey from San Francisco. Coming up on today's episode... It was once you close your first, you know, eight-figure deal, you know, every other one following that is still a lot of work, but ultimately, um, you know, you, you have that confidence that you continuously do it and you're doing the right things. And, you know, we're, I wouldn't say we are necessarily a disruptor in the space, but we focus very much on kind of three particular type of business models and we've become extremely good at that over, well, over 1,100 acquisitions now. In one way or another, I have to live two or three years in the future in my head to think, well, where's the company going to be then and how are we resourced and, and how are we position ourselves to, to quite achieve that um, to, today. Hiring one very good person is better than hiring five average people. Ismail is the executive chairman of FE International, market leader in the sale of SaaS, e-commerce and content businesses. Over the past decade, Ismail has overseen a thousand plus successful acquisitions, totally 1 billion USD. You can find more information about Ismail, including links to his LinkedIn profile and company website in the show notes. Now, let's start. Hi, Ismail. I'm glad to have you on. Welcome to the International Business Podcast. Thank you for having me. Ismail, what makes you an international professional? Uh, yeah, good question. I mean, I think to a certain extent, everybody is um, kind of I guess, international, you know, with kind of globalization that we have uh, at the moment anyway. But I mean, for me, more specifically, uh, I mean, I've, so I'm, I'm from the UK originally, um, I, I'm actually half French as well. But yeah, from, from born and raised in the UK, but I now live in the US and I have done for the last seven years or so um so you know over that span you know lived in a number of different states and um and you know i've also had the pleasure of working with you know in terms of you know our client base i think you know clients in around 32 different countries around the world so a lot of you know pre-pandemic a lot of traveling a lot of you know going out meeting people obviously a lot of things these days are just done via zoom video conference and and the like but no generally speaking um you know i think that i've had a, a huge uh well, a great opportunity to to kind of go to a lot of different places see a lot of different cultures from a, a, a professional and personal perspective so um yeah that's really kind of led me to you know kind of take a very international approach you know to, to the kind of work kind of nature of, of work that we do let's focus a second on founders ismail so what are some things some of the things that founders should be keeping in mind when looking to scale their businesses? Yeah, I mean, this is mainly from my my own personal kind of experience of, of doing exactly that. And, and I, I have seen, you know, I do speak to a lot of other founders, so kind of I do pick things up over time as well. But I think, you know, one of the main, or kind of two of the main things I would say is firstly, thinking ahead is very important. Um, I mean, nobody starts a business with the idea that they're going to fail, or they're not going to be in a position to scale their company. And as that starts to, you know, you know as that starts to come to fruition, um, it can be very disruptive to have to stop the process and rethink, um, you know, your operations or infrastructure or strategy every couple of years. So, you know, certainly appreciate that you know, when most people start their businesses, they start with very little resource and they look to scale, especially those going down the, the, the bootstrap, um, you know, the avenue more than the funded avenue. But, you know, really thinking ahead in terms of, you know, staffing, infrastructure, software you're using, 
if you're if you are adopting an uh, in office strategy and really think well you know if i if you know my business plan or my strategy is successful where will i be in three to five years time and how can i plan for that today and that may not necessarily mean um you know taking a very large office today or over hiring the staff today but at least leaving yourself in a position where you are flexible enough to chop and change um, over time and move from one particular situation to another in a very cost efficient and also time efficient strat uh, manner. So I say that thinking ahead is, is very, you know, very important and ultimately you know, backing yourself to be successful and then, you know, having the flexibility to, to, to go off and execute on that over time. Uh, so I think that's kind of one area that, that you know, I've found over the years has, has been very helpful because, you know, every time we, our first US office was in Boston and then New York and then San Francisco. And every time you do scale up and it, it can be disruptive, um, you know, to, to do that. So you know, that's something that definitely learned through experience. Um, and I'd say the other thing, um, you know, is, uh, is people, is talent. I think that's kind of at the core of, you know, uh, you know I mainly work with, you know, technology focused businesses, but still, you know, human, human capital is extremely important in um, kind of building and, and delivering on that. Um, and really, over time, we found that hiring one very good person is better than hiring five average people. So again, it's really kind of, you know, taking a step back and finding it, you know, finding the best talent you know possible either based on um you know the the area you're, you're looking in you know either from a either from a you know an industry perspective or potentially a location perspective uh but then you know really taking the view of well, what is the very best i can get for the type of resource i'm, I'm willing to or, or am able to put into this so i would say kind of those are the two kind of key things that you know through through trial and error and experience over time i, I would say um are, are areas to, to focus on as as people are scaling their companies in one or two sentences, how would you define software as a service? Yeah, okay. So, so software as a service, or, or SaaS as we typically refer to, it, is effectively is a way of delivering uh, you know, applications over you know, cloud or, or the internet as a service, effectively. So I guess the way of thinking about it is instead of installing and maintaining one piece of software, you can access you know, that particular software and often very, very complex software, um, you know, over the cloud um, with you know, next to zero management you know, from your side effectively. So it's a very scalable way of, you know, cloud-based solution of delivering software to, in some cases, millions of people, uh, as opposed to historically, before we had SaaS, we just had software, you know, a lot of instances would have to be, you know, installed and maintained on, you know, local databases or, or local desktops and drives and, and kind of run from there. So that's really, the, so instead of a, a one-on-one, it's a one on many, um, which is you know, what SaaS really is. So how can SaaS, e-commerce and content business owners position themselves for a possible acquisition? Yes, it's a great question. I mean, there are a lot of um, you know, successful founders that reference a book called um, Built to Sell, um, which I'm sure you, you've heard of and, and many maybe we here have heard of as well. Um, and that's that's a really good um, you know, guide and, and book to kind of successfully scaling a business over time. Although, ironically, the book doesn't actually teach you how to sell a business. It teaches you how to build a scalable business. Um, so it's not kind of literally saying these are the five steps to build and sell your company. It's kind of teaching you how to, to build a company that may not need you over time and could be self-sufficient and run you know, very effectively. So um but, you know, generally, um, the, the things that I would say for, well, yeah, SaaS, e-commerce, content business owners, as well as you know, just business owners in general, um, 
I would say build your company as if you're not trying to sell it. Because when it comes to valuation work and when it comes to, you know, companies looking to acquire you, they often, um, you know, a lot of the expenses that you may have, so R&D development, those kind of things, they may often add that back to your profit and loss statement uh, anyway when it comes for the purpose of valuation. And really, these potential acquirers are looking to uh, buy a business that's been very well run, that's iterated over time, maybe had a couple of pivots, has, you know, found very good product market fit um, or or kind of content market fit and you know they can take and scale uh, you know further with additional capital investment so they like companies that have had uh, you know a lot of that or you know they've had they've had a lot of investment um put into them over time as opposed to companies that have just been run on an extremely lean basis not really tried much uh, or kind of you know try to you know push the envelope um from an r d perspective or a testing and optimizing perspective. So I would say, you know, always build, you know, run a company as if you're not necessarily trying to sell it, because a lot of the things, um, you know, you, you may do, uh, you know, could be seen as addbacks over time. Um, and, and, you know, really things to focus on are building a, you know, robust team structure, um, you know, be mindful of concentration risk, be that customer concentration or seasonality, um, you know, have solid financial records in place, you know, do your tax planning. It, it, oftentimes uh, people get to the point of receiving a, an offer and they're not ready they may need to move to a different country or different state or they just may not be optimized from a tax planning perspective so that's always worth um you know being cognizant of and, and i'd also say kind of you know oftentimes people get approached um, to sell their companies um, and, and you know it's very much worth selling when the business is on the rise so before you hit that plateau stage because that's when valuations may take more of a forward-looking um, you know use a forward-looking multiple as opposed to a historic multiple um, there as well which does sound counterintuitive I, I appreciate sometimes people think well there's more growth to be had here but buyers want to you know or acquirers want to take over growing businesses not businesses that have plateaued because then they may need to put more capital in to get that growth going again and and that obviously features in the the price or, or kind of terms that you end up seeing um you know on the table so yeah i would always kind of suggest people get valuations um you know very you know, kind of early on into their entrepreneurial journey, get an understanding of the metrics that are important to their specific business and use that to kind of carve out the potential exit plan um, further down the line. You mentioned e-commerce, Ismail. So what were the major developments in this area during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it's been a very, it's been an interesting uh you know, kind of a couple of years in the, in the e-commerce space. I mean, a lot of e-commerce now um, is kind of Amazon FBA focused um, or, or let's say kind of Shopify, big commerce, et cetera. Um, there is some crossover between two and some of the bigger brands do tend to use both, but there are kind of two you know, strategy, those kind of two slightly opposing strategies that kind of e-commerce founders take. Um, I think generally, um, you know, I would say supply chain management has been uh, a huge uh, area of uh, focus and development for a lot of e-commerce owners. Previously, um, yeah, it wasn't always necessarily simple and there were issues and, you know, a lot of people are sourcing products from you know, China or elsewhere around the world, uh, you know, and then you know, putting into, let's say, Amazon's network for you know, fulfillment network and, you know, from there can be distributed, uh, you know, globally. But um, a lot of that was almost taken for granted uh, in some context in the sense that, you know, there was no real, you know, not a huge level of concern of kind of deliverability issues or, um, or timings kind of subject to, change here and there but i think with the pandemic people have really started to take a focus on well where are we at you know where are the products actually coming from what is capacity like um and kind of how do we how do we forward look in terms of inventory as well and going back to my point about ad backs um you know when you're valuing an e-commerce business for example inventory is always removed so 
the majority of people will prepare their their you know, books month to month on a cash flow basis. But when you value a business, you're looking at it on an accrual basis. So when you know it's very possible for you to kind of take very large uh, shipment orders and kind of keep them on the balance sheet um, and not necessarily affect the, the valuation itself. So I think a lot of people are are you know being a little bit more forward looking now with their supply chain management, you know, understanding, you know, really kind of, you know, how robust it is, you know, stress, you know, obviously it's been stress tested extensively with the pandemic, um, but trying to um, you know, alleviate those kind of pressures going forward by maybe bringing multiple, uh, you know, uh, uh, manufacturers in play from different regions around the world um, as well. But then also, you know, just having much, much larger, um, you know, inventory counts on hand as well. I, I think that's another trend that we've been seeing. So, um, yeah, and I think the other thing really, uh, kind of developments kind of for, for e-commerce is, is just the shift in kind of, you know, end or kind of end user behavior, kind of customer behavior. I think a lot more people are now at home, they're trying to live healthier lifestyles, um, kind of more self-care um, going on as well. So those sectors have done extremely well. And I think that is a, a shift that's not necessarily going to change, um, you know, going into the future too. So yeah, I think that, you know, they're both operational items that have, um, have developed significantly over the past couple of years, but then also some kind of interesting shifts in, in user behavior that I think are, are here to last. I know you have lots of experience in growing companies, but Instead of uh, focusing on growth, I want to focus on the common pitfalls or areas that distract companies from achieving growth. The, the first thing is what I like to call um, shiny coin syndrome, um, which is you know, literally just chasing the next idea um, because you believe it. But yeah, it, it's interesting. And I, I appreciate, as I said earlier, you know, it's important to iterate and do R&D and test, but that should always be from a position of um, you know, data or you know, genuine insights um, or, or, or kind of knowledge, whereas you know, it, it's... Um, you know, for kind of successful entrepreneurs, you know, one of the reasons, one of the things that makes them successful is they are quite, that um, they are kind of quite creative. So it isn't uncommon to see people, you know, build a business, get that business from zero to one, and then decide that they want to start, you know, building another business, for example, and getting that from zero to one. But then, you know, you may leave a lot of value on the table in that business that, that you've already created. So it is very, very easy to get distracted. It's important to, you know, find one area or, or one kind of industry that you're, you know, you're, you know, very much interested in and then really double down on that uh, over time as well because a lot of the you know what goes into being successful um is kind of obviously you know insight knowledge passion drive and it's also just doing things um consistently over time and a lot of your competition will fall away and kind of you know fall for this shiny coin syndrome and that's when there's you know, certainly more market share um to, to be taken as well so that's kind of one one thing um i think this is also very important to you know, to just not not just you know follow the, the competition. I think you really need to be um, you know listening directly to customers or consumers, kind of your client base to understand you know what your you know your SaaS your SaaS you know product or, or kind of e-commerce uh, you know your products or, or content. I um, mean you know, whether it resonates or doesn't resonate. And a lot of times when people have kind of started to hit a plateau and then you know got through that and kind of started to push back towards high levels of growth it's because they they you know take a step back, they start listening to the feedback and understanding, well, my you know, my perception of what this company needs may have been this, but then speaking to my customer base, they actually care about this. So I think that's one area that really is a, a def, you know a defining factor between businesses that go from you know zero to one and stay at one, and then those that go from one to ten. So I think that's really kind of an important area. And if you just follow the competition all of the time, ultimately it can just be an intellectual you know, race to the bottom. You know, you're really kind of inward looking, focused on what your competitors are doing versus you know what the market is, you know the, the kind of wider customer base and 
the market really wants or needs. Um, so I think that's kind of you know, one area. And I, and, and I guess the other thing, uh, and maybe this is more personal you know, to me, but um, I, I personally believe that there is such a thing as over networking. Um, so, you know, I certainly understand that networking events, you can go meet other entrepreneurs, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, it, entrepreneurial life can be, you know, very isolated, very lonely. So I, I do appreciate that you know, there is a, a, a need for that, certainly. And you can learn some great things and meet some great people but you can do too much of it i think a lot of times you know you should have um you know conviction in your your thoughts and ideas and your own abilities and obviously there's a lot of you know, great books and great people you can meet out there as well but you know i think that there's, there's no substitute for just you know getting your head down and you know a lot of hard work so uh yeah i'd say kind of those, those three areas we we you know we can see uh we we see a lot of sometimes and and i would say that you know in different varying uh, levels, kind of trying to uh, avoid some of those items can can lead to a slightly, you know, a, a more successful path over time. So you're in the States, I'm in China. We have 12, 12 hours different, uh, difference. We're recording a podcast, so we're chilled. But how about managing people? How about managing teams across the world? What's your take on leading global teams yeah, and you know, I, I at certain stages I've been accused of being a, a micromanager, so I'm, I try not to do that anymore. Um, but I would say that the two things that work really, really well are so every department in our company provides a daily update, and that goes out at the same time. Um, that that goes out at the same time globally. So effectively, I can just look at the update across all teams, uh, across across all regions, and get a real understanding of. Uh, you know, what's been going on that day. And the way we structure our daily updates is, um, you know, so it may, so if it's in marketing, for example, it'll be, you know, per, per event or item that we're doing. If it's in our M&A department, it'll be like, you know, per acquisition that, that we're working on. And in one column, it effectively says today's update and the other column, it says yesterday's update. So you can see the progress from one day to the next and it holds everybody accountable because you're not allowed to put, you know, no change on yesterday. There always has to be progress in everything that's being worked on. So I think, you know, creating that kind of expectation uh, and then, you know, the, the kind of group and collective accountability of every team sending around their updates to every other team. I think that that's very important. It helps with collaboration and, and understanding what other people are are working on as well um and then we also supplement so we get that in the evening and then we also supplement that with morning calls with every team uh as well and and sometimes that means we have to start you know i have to start early you know i have to start you know 6 7 a.m so, so that we can kind of get everything done uh before the the you know, you know we start working with our clients a little bit later on in the morning but um yeah i mean that that's very very helpful doing it in that order because then you can digest the information from the evening the, the updates the day before you can have some time to think about it in your own time and then you know by the time you have to call in the morning, you've slept on it, you may have ideas and suggestions of how to you know, address any challenges or, or issues. But I would say those are the two things that have been really, really uh, helpful managing across countries and, and time zones. And what tips would you have for running meetings online across the world? Yeah, I, I would say have an agenda. I think that's the main thing. Um, I, I think that goes for, for any meeting in general, but I think that it is important. So you know, before any team meeting that we have, um, you know, whoever is holding the meeting will collect, uh, you know, in, uh, will collect insights from people within the meetings that anything specific they want to bring up and talk about, and then have that in the agenda plus any supporting materials that people need to read ahead of time. And that that may sound very basic, but I think that if you follow that principle, everybody has time to you know read, understand, digest, and can go into the meeting. Um, you know, with, uh, you know, a, a, an open mind and open eyes back. So there's, there's nothing worse than sitting in a meeting and, you know, wanting to discuss something and the answer 
being, well, let's go and get the data because I didn't bring it to the meeting or you haven't had a chance to look at it. So this time we've allocated, you know, in various different time zones is, is almost wasted uh, because you know, we, we weren't proactively sending this around. So I would say kind of, you know, that that's very important uh, for us. And I think also just, you know, just just being, um, you know, just cognizant and, and respectful of other people in general as well. I mean, you know, business can be stressful. Business is stressful, especially if you're scaling a, a company. And, you know, I think that there with the, the move to remote, um, you know, I think that, you know, there are a lot of, um, you know, we, we kind of run a hybrid model now, but there, there are a lot of pitfalls, um, I would say, to kind of people always working out of their house. There may be, you know, other stresses they have going on, or they may have you know, family members running around or, or other things as well. So, you know, just being kind of understanding and a little bit more patient than you know, necessarily if you were in, a, in an office in a, in a conference room where everybody is 100% there two meters out away from you. So yeah, I would say kind of th those are the kind of things we, we try to adopt um, and, and that's kind of helped us to, to have you know, very productive you know, Zoom and, and other kind of meetings. How did you make the decision to work for yourself and what has that journey looked like, Ismail? Yeah, so I used to work in, so I worked in um, two investment banks in London um, when I first started my career. And I learned a lot there. And a lot of the things I, I still do today, um, you know, I, I, I kind of link back to my experiences and, and the training I received there was world-class, it was absolutely fantastic. And a lot of things, if you learn them early on, you you they'll, they'll stay with you for, for the rest of your, your career. But um, no, I, I think the challenge I had with the investment banks is that you know, they were, I mean, one of them had 200,000 employees globally. So they like to pitch themselves as being a meritocracy, but really it's very hard to achieve meritocracy at that kind of scale. So um, I, I felt that after a while, no, no amount of pushing or no amount of slacking or, or you know, not doing my job would would affect the ultimate outcome. And I just realized that that wasn't necessary. There wasn't enough control over my own kind of future and destiny within that. So the, the actual decision to, you know, I, and up to that point, I, I, you know, all my education, all of the, the decisions I'd made, you know, during, um, you, know, college, you know, high school, college and everything else you know, led up to, to getting into you know, that kind of role. But then ultimately, I, I realized that it, it looked better on paper than it was in, in reality. So, you know, the, the, the move you know, out of that was wasn't particularly difficult in terms of the decision making process. Um, and I was very fortunate that my, my business partner, uh, Thomas Smale, he um, he'd already started the company. So I actually joined a couple of years in um, and he was very much the creative mind, um, uh, but behind kind of starting our business. But then, you know, I kind of came in more from an ops perspective, kind of, you know, working on kind of how to how to grow and scale the company, which is a continuous thing that, that we're doing still today. I've got one final question I ask everyone who comes on the show, Ismail. Share with us one remarkable, memorable moment from your international career, and you can choose between a successful, a funny, or even a, I don't know, a bad, catastrophic episode. Well, fortunately, I am covered by non-disclosure groups of all of my clients, so uh, I, 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 there's only a limited amount I, I can say, really. But I mean, I think for us, you know, the, the memorable moment was, um, I think when we closed our first, well, it, was a, it was a good while ago now, it was when we cl closed our first eight-figure acquisition for a client. I think, and that was one of the, the largest hedge funds in the world, um, you know, backing that particular deal. And I think that really took it to, you know, where we always thought we could be, you know, successful and start to challenge some of these mid-tier you know, investment banks. Uh, but I think that was the moment when it actually, you know, turned from a, a, a dream and a, a, on paper to, you know, this is actually reality. And, you know, it's, it, it's something that, you know, we'd worked very, very hard for, but ultimately it, it had come to, it had come to fruition. From there, that kind of, you know, it was once you close your first, 
first, you know, eight figure deal, you know, every other one following that, there's still a lot of work, but ultimately, um, you know, you, you have that confidence that you can continuously do it and you're doing the right things. And, you know, we're, I wouldn't say we are necessarily a disruptor in the space, but we focus very much on kind of three particular type of business models. And we've become extremely good at that over, well, over 1100 acquisitions now. So, but, you know, taking that, even with that, until you kind of take that first kind of eight figure deal happen, which like I said was a, a while ago now, um, you know, we didn't have that confidence going to do the next thing. And, and, you know, now that's there, you know, it's okay. Well, let's, you know, nine figure and, and beyond, which is kind of what, what we do now. Who should connect with you, Ismail, after listening to this episode? And to wrap this up, tell us a little bit more about your current role. Yeah, so I am uh, the executive chairman of FE International, uh, which you can just find us at feinternational.com. Um, I uh, uh, so, but my role effectively is to do a lot of things that you know, we've spoken about here. I mean, kind of think that I effectively have to, in one way or another, I have to live two or three years in the future in my head to think, well, where's the company going to be then and how are we resourced and, and how are we position ourselves to, to quite achieve that um, to, today? So, I mean, I've, I've been you know in this company for 10 years or so now, and we've had the opportunity to work with you know, many you know, fantastic SaaS e-commerce and content business owners to, you know, to kind of exit their company. And we do a lot of exit planning, a lot of evaluation work, you know, in anticipation of people exiting, because ultimately, you know, one of the things, you know, one way or another, at some point in time, everybody will exit to their business so we like to kind of get in and you know speak to people very early on in that journey um and, and we also have a private equity fund so you know we we you know, have the pleasure of you know working with a lot of kind of you know successful investors um as well but yeah my, my role specifically is just to make sure we are able to fulfill on you know the strategy and growth that we're thinking for the next you know two three years and, and beyond um so yeah which is a, a relatively new role for me but, but one I'm, I'm very very much enjoying yeah, so the kind of people we'd be very happy to connect with are SaaS e-commerce and, and content business owners. Uh, we do a lot of you know bootstrap and, and kind of self-funded companies and, and some uh, you know kind of uh, VC-backed and, and funded companies there too. Um, but yeah, I mean anybody who's thinking about you know at some point in time it may not be today, it may be next year or in five years, but thinking about an exit, we always offer free valuations and, and free exit planning because for us it's much better to work with people where we've had an opportunity to show them through a data-led perspective. Um, you know, where they may be leaving value on the table or where there may be opportunities for, for further growth and really having a good understanding of their business before we help them go out and, and sell it. So we're always very happy to connect with, you know, uh, founders in it or kind of investors in those areas, investors kind of seeking exposure to those areas, either through kind of you know, private equity you know, funds that we have or, or through kind of direct investments in acquiring these type of companies. Um, but yes, we have a, you know, we're always here. So very, very happy to have conversations no matter how close or far that, that that may be or that may be relevant to, to, to people listening. Ismail, I want to thank you for your insights. Thank you for joining us on the International Business Podcast. Thank you so much. Appreciate having me. You can find the podcast on all the major platforms. Make sure to subscribe. Do not miss the weekly episodes. And are you an international professional? Connect with us on LinkedIn to come on the show. For now, cheers.